All right, so we are walking, walking through um, the Westminster Larger Catechism and the Westminster Confession of Faith, Westminster Standards. I think I was tasked with question, I asked about this last night just to be sure, question 37 through 41 of the Larger Catechism. Does that, does that ring bells for anybody in here? Because I, I, I went to see Arnie's, but like I said, it was, uh, it was January 31st, it's online, so I got confused. Um, but 37 through 41, and the questions deal mainly with uh, Christ being our mediator. Um, so let's, let's uh, pray and then let's get into these questions and let's just talk and let's see what happens, shall we? Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for this time together. Uh, we thank you for Christ who is our mediator, Christ who is our salvation and our hope. And Lord, we do pray that you would bless our conversation this morning, that it would be um, rich and informative, that it would be uh, satisfying and uh, nurturing to our souls that as we discuss uh, the great things of Jesus, we would be edified and encouraged this morning. So bless this time in your word, we pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, so question 37 through 41. Uh, and we're going to kind of look at that. I've got some other things I want to talk about. I'm probably going to step on some toes of some future questions, but that, that's all right. Um, because I think it's just like allowing the, the, the conversation to be... Uh, rather organic and allowing it to go where it goes and have the fun that uh, we're intended to have in the conversation is important, more important than making sure we don't talk about stuff that we're not supposed to talk about until the next question's coming up, if that all makes sense. Um, so if we are where we are supposed to be, then the last question that was brought up was 36, which is who is the mediator of the covenant of grace? Again, does that ring bells? Is that, is that setting off alarms and brains? Like, oh yes, no, Jeremiah's vehemently shaking his head no. Last week, you don't, do, can you tell me what was covered last week? Psalms? Oh, psalm sing. Last week was a psalm sing. Dang it, that's my fault. Yeah. Uh, I tried to get Calvin to pick a song and he wouldn't do it. Doesn't matter, I told you to pick it, it would have been awesome. But you didn't do it. Um, so that would have been two weeks ago then that 36 was covered. Who is the mediator of the covenant of grace? Right? And who is the mediator of the covenant of grace? Very good. Excellent. 90% of the time that's the correct answer anyway. So you were safe. Right? Christ is the mediator of the covenant of grace. So 37 through 41, we continue to look at Christ as the mediator. And so a couple things we want to talk about. Again, I want to see where the conversation goes. Like we'll, we'll, we'll introduce the question and then we're just going to let the conversation mature and metastasize on its own, Lord willing. So question 37 how did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Um, so the answer, well, why don't you, you tell me the answer. How did Christ, the mediator, become uh, man? Yes. The incarnation. All right, would you, would you break that down for us? You use these big fancy words. Explain it to me as if I'm a five-year-old. Huh? Yep. <laughs> Your daddy gives you ten dollars. Go ahead. Explain to me like I'm a five year old. Are you finding that difficult to do? To imagine what is it more difficult to imagine that I'm five or more difficult to explain it to a five year old? Both, both and. All right, the incarnation, right? So um, what, what is the incarnation? When we, when we talk about, so we, we talk about the incarnation a lot. We know what it is. Like, so um, if we were to point to a, a biblical text, if we were to point to a text, 
uh, there's several that we could point to. What are some that we'd point to uh, in, in reference to the incarnation? John 1, what? Okay, so John 1, 14, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have beheld his glory, glory is of the only begotten. All right, um, what's another text? Too many pens in my pocket. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. All right, so he gave his only son. All right, what's another one that would, that, that we, when we think of the incarnation? All right, uh, so in particular Mary's, the visitation of Mary, right? The Holy Spirit, the power of the, the Holy One will overshadow you. Right, so that which will be born of you will be called holy, son of the living God. Right, so Mary's told that it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a unique birth, and uh, Joseph is told in his, um, you know, quest to divorce, quietly put away Mary, like that which is born of her is, is of the Holy Spirit. Right, because jo Joseph's slightly confused as to how she's pregnant when they have not yet consummated the marriage. Uh, so, uh, and that just, you know, that, again, just as an aside, this is a, an aside. This is. Um, a call out in the margin here uh, really shows you the character of Joseph in that regard, right? So Joseph, assuming that his wife, his, his betrothed, has has played the whore, instead of doing what he rightly, rightfully had the the, the um, opportunity to do, which was to publicly shame her, uh, he seeks to put her away quietly to find some way to do this so so that she doesn't she she's not shamed in the midst of that. Uh, the the text that's in my mind is Philippians two uh, five through following, right? Uh, this uh, Paul most likely uh, using an ancient hymn or a, a, a hymn that would be present within the church, uh, speaking of the glory of Christ. So within the context of Philippians, Paul is looking at this church, uh, a church which has relational issues, right? We often read the book of Philippians thinking there's no problems in Philippi, great church, but they have relational issues, right? They've got problems, uh, especially between two women that we find later on in chapter four. But Paul's writing to the church and he's saying, look, put the needs of others above yourself. Think more highly of others than you do yourself. Uh, and then he puts Christ forward as the, the prime example of this, right? Have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, he says, who, who although existing in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be greedily held on to, right? But he emptied himself. He emptied himself, uh, becoming uh, man uh, and taking upon himself the form of a servant, uh, being found in human flesh and human likeness. He became obedient uh, even to the point of death, and that death on a cross, right? So Paul... Uh, Paul speaks of the incarnation there in Philippians 2, 5 through uh, 11, really, and, and the end, uh, end goal of the, the incarnation. Now, so uh, when we think about the incarnation, if the incarnation is the word becoming flesh, John 1, 14, Mary, over, Mary overshadowed by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, Philippians uh, 2, in particular, Christ emptying himself and taking on the form of a servant. When, when we speak about the incarnation, um, like getting down to the nitty-gritty technical of it, what, like what is it? What's happening there? What, what's, what's taking place in the incarnation? Mm. I saw Arnie say one time, he's like, I'm post-mill, I can wait all day. So I too also can wait. Too. I mean, think about like uh, what's what's happening. What 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 is the incarnation? We say it. We believe it. We know it. We can point to biblical texts that that affirm it. But what's happening there? 
Okay, what does that mean? Oh, interesting. That's a really great thought too. Awesome. Great. Thanks. This is, why, this is why it's so fun to just let conversations mature and metastasize. All right. So God taking to himself human flesh, right? Um, so the, the incarnation is not a diminishing of the divinity in any way, shape or form, right? It's an adding to it, right? He's adding to it uh, human nature, right? Uh, so there's been, I mean, you think about the, the discussions about uh, the incarnation and, and in particular, the, the two natures and the union of the two natures in Christ and what that looks like throughout the centuries of the church, there's been good teaching and really bad teaching, right? Uh, we think about like the Nicene Creed and how um, usually every week we confess the Nicene Creed. And, and part of that is this understanding of the, the two natures and the union of these two natures in Christ. So when we talk about the incarnation, it's not the diminishing of the divinity in any way, shape, or form. It's the adding to it of human nature, right? Um, so that you have uh, two natures, two natures, in one person, right? Uh, in, in a lot of ways, it sounds very much like the Trinity, right? So uh, the Trinity, we have uh, three persons, one divine essence, one God, right? We don't, uh, so the, the unity, the unity doesn't in any way, shape, or form diminish the, 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 the Trinity, and the Trinity doesn't in any way, shape, or form diminish the unity. Um, same way with Christ, you have two natures uh, in one uh, flesh, one person, uh, the person Christ, the God-man, uh, and so when it talks, when Paul talks about, um, when Paul talks about Christ emptying himself in Philippians chapter two, right? When he says he emptied himself, what is it that he emptied himself of? Because there's been points in history where people said, well, that's him emptying himself of aspects of his divinity or parts of his divinity or the fullness of his divinity. Let, let, let's just think, let's just think biblically for a moment. Like, um, if, if someone were to say that's Christ emptying himself of the fullness of his divinity in order to take on human flesh, right? Um, biblically, biblically, how would we contradict that? Think of another passage that would contradict that. Don't just stare at me. You can't just stare at me. Look away. Feel it. I feel your gaze. I feel your gaze upon me. <laughs> I'm thinking of Colossians, right? Colossians chapter one. Paul uh, Paul says again in Colossians that in Him all the fullness of deity dwelt, right? In Christ. Um, so it's not a, it's not a diminishing of His divinity in any way, shape, or form. So what is it an emptying of? When it says He emptied Himself and took on uh, human nature, human flesh. What what is the emptying? Am I asking bad questions or are you just not talkative or I need some help here? For me personally, this is just something I've always had questions about. No, oh, great. I'm here to learn. Well, no, ask the questions. Like process this out loud processing, out loud processing. That's what we're doing here, right? This is out loud processing. So, so, so emptying himself, what do you think it is? Like when it says, Paul says he emptied himself. What, what in your mind, what, what do you hear? What do you think? What's, what are the wheels turning? What's coming out? There's no wrong answers except heresy. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah. Prepare the stones. <laughs> um, Look, I, give me one second. One reference that sticks out to me is the Philippians 2, where mm -hmm. he condescended to take on flesh. Mm -hmm. And uh, part of what's meaningful about that sacrifice to me is that he, you know, 
it submits to uh, loss of you know, some type of closeness with the father mm -hmm. uh, to take on flesh, alluding to the ultimate you know, separation on the cross. Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah. Throughout the incarnation, Christ certainly is moving at the behest of his Father, right? I only come to do that which the Father has told me to do. And then in Matthew 28, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. At the end of Philippians 2, right, is his exaltation. So at the name of Christ, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. So God's highly exalted him because of his obedience, right? So yeah, there's a sense in which he submitted himself willingly uh, to, the, to the will of the Father through his incarnation. And that would be... Um, yeah, that would be his human nature perfectly in line with perfectly obedient to the will of the Father. Tim, you were going to say something? Emptied himself of the obvious manifestation of his glory and took on himself basically the exact opposite, which is the form of a servant, right? He comes in the form of a servant. Obviously, Paul saying he comes in the form of the servant, what does that make us think of? I mean, the Isaiah passages, the, the servant of the Lord passages in Isaiah, and this isn't, this isn't, you know, coincidence here. He takes the form of a servant, the form of the servant who in Isaiah is the, is the Lord's chosen instrument to do his work, right, throughout the Isaiah passages. So his emptying himself is not a, it's not a diminishing of his divinity. It's not a, a lessening of his divinity. It's not a lessening of his power, his omniscience, his, um, his omnipotence. Uh, these things aren't diminished or gone. They're, they're there in, in uh, the divinity um, but he has made himself into the form of a servant, so the obvious manifestations of his glory, right? Which is why the tra this is why the, the transfiguration is such a powerful moment as well, right? Transfiguration when when uh, uh, Peter, James, and uh, John are there on the mountain with him, and they see this like this the radiance of Christ, right? To see the radiance of Christ in that moment. Um, uh, there was something in my mind that I, I relinquished there for a second. So it's, uh, oh, okay. So yeah, so then the incarnation, it's not a diminishing of his divinity, but it is, it is, a, uh, it is a limitation of it, right? Um, it, it is a limitation in the sense that he has chosen in the incarnation to accept the limitations of, of the, the human nature, right? So Christ in his, in, his, uh, in his deity does not cease to be omniscient, right? He doesn't cease to be omnipresent or omnipotent, but it, it becomes limited by the human nature, right? I, I, I was reading an analogy, an uh, analogy would be like um, if you had the, the world's number one sprinter, right? Uh, the world's fastest sprinter, and he entered into a three-legged race where he has to tie his leg to another person. Like physically, none of his, his, his abilities have diminished at all. He's still the fastest sprinter in the world, but he has limited himself now uh, because he's tied himself to another person where they have to run together. Even if that other person he ties himself to is the second fastest sprinter in the world, still going to have a time that's drastically lower than the time that he would run typically or normally on his own. Um, so uh, I was reading, um, uh, we'll just answer the question, we'll, we'll answer the question right now just from the text, but it says, Christ the Son of God became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance uh, and born of her yet without sin. Um, so yet without sin, that makes me, uh, when I read that, it makes me think about the doctrine of impeccability. Uh, are you familiar with the doctrine of impeccability when we talk about Christ? 
Jeremiah is shaking his head yes. The seminary student also raises his hand. What, uh, what is the doctrine of impeccability? Quinn? Oh gosh, and yet you put your hand up. What are we working with here, Tim? Go ahead. Okay, uh, not not just that, right? Um, Jeremiah, do you care to expound on it? Yeah. So that's the fullness of the doctrine, right? So the idea that Christ, uh, in the incarnation, not only was he without sin, right, but he was incapable of sinning. He, he could not sin, right? Um, and the way that, one of the ways that that becomes an interesting uh, uh, doctrine, which I, think is, which I think is upheld by the scriptures, does anybody have any issue with that? Let's start there. Does anybody have any issue with the doctrine of impeccability, the, 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 the doctrine that Christ was beyond sinning? Okay, so what would we, how would we combat that? What would we say to that? Because it's really beautiful. It's, it's really awesome when you start to think about the, 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 the role of temptation in Christ if, if impeccability is true, which I think it is. So if somebody says, well, if Christ is truly impeccable, then the temptations are nil. They're, they're, they're inconsequential. They're not real temptations. So what, what, would, be the, what would be the kind of the, the um, pushback against that? Say that again? Without following through. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and, and so when, when we think about temptation, and both of those, I think both of those are, are hitting at the, the, the thing that's in my brain, which not that what's in my brain is most important. Um, but when we think about temptation, uh, temptation is an enticement to sin, right? Um, and what is, what is the end of temptation? Like what, what brings it to an end? What, what, what ends the itch? The, the scratch, right? The, the scratch is what ends the itch. Like if I've got an itch on my body, scratching it gets rid of it, right? Uh, so the other day I made, I came in the house and I, I felt like there was, I felt like I had a bug bite and I made my wife go over my whole back. I was like, we got to, we got to take care of this. It's got to go. We've got to, it's, it's running away from you currently. You've got to chase that itch, right? Get it. Um, and so temptation is, is satisfied. It's ended. It's completed when there is, uh, when it, when it's given into, right? When it's so, uh, the, the, the realness of temptation is not dependent upon the uh, ability or inability to sin, right? That doesn't make temptation real or not real. Uh, in fact, we could argue that Christ uh, was, was tempted uh, far greater than we were because he never gave in to temptation. So he experienced in himself for his, for his life the fullness, right, the fullness of temptation yet never giving into it. So uh, he, he, his, his impeccability doesn't lessen the reality of the temptation. In fact, it, it, we could say it only heightens the temptation because in his human nature, he can't experience temptation, right? Uh, the divine nature, the divine nature prevents uh, the, 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 the sin and ensures the perfect 
submission and obedience of the human nature, right? So the human nature can endure the temptation, but it has to endure it to the end, right? To the end without giving in. Um, and, then, and then when we think about impeccability and the, the realization of temptation, this is another interesting thing to think about. Um, and I, I don't want to claim this is like a, my own thought. I was reading this from Kevin DeYoung the other day. Um, but where, where does temptation come from for us? Where does temptation come from? All right, that's one location. Or, or outside, right? Like two, if we, make, if we break it down to two, two areas. Like either we're tempted internally, our own sinful hearts, our own sinful desires are enticed, right? They're enticed. Or there's an external temptation that, that comes upon us, right? So when we think about the, inter- when we think about the impeccability of Christ, uh, Christ did, he, when it says he was tempted in every way, we are yet without sin, it, it doesn't mean that the means of his temptation was exactly the same as it is for us. So Christ never experienced um, internal enticement of sinful nature, right? Like because he's, because he's perfect, because he's holy, because he's righteous in, in, in all ways, his temptation was never this enticement of a sinful desire in his heart. Yes, sir? It's different than us because we have a history of sin and Jesus did not. Yeah, and, and that's, I'm going to read you something here which I think is really awesome, which hits at that too um, by a guy named Millard. Um, but so, yeah, so when we think about Jesus being without sin, uh, not only he's w- without sin, he's beyond sin. He's beyond sin. Uh, and, and his temptation is, uh, is an external temptation that comes from, like we look at Matthew uh, chapter 4, where Jesus is in the wilderness and Satan is tempting him uh, to um, act upon his divine power in a way that's contrary to the way the Father has instructed him to do, right? But it's not an enticement of internal desire within his heart, right? Uh, like, uh, like he was secretly pining for and longing for Mary Magdalene, right? That kind of thing, like uh, the Da Vinci Code type stuff, right? Um, so when we think about the incarnation there's, uh, and, and the two natures uh, in Christ, uh, I was reading from Millard Erickson's uh, theology, and, and I wanted to read this to you because I, I thought it was really awesome. And maybe we can have some discussion about it, maybe not. Maybe you can just let it sit on you. Uh, but he's, he's talking about uh, basic tenets of the doctrine of two natures in one person. He's kind of discussed some, some heresies and some fallacies about that. And when we talk about the two natures in one person, the phrase we usually use is the hypostatic union, right? So that he's 100% man, he's 100% God. These two natures, um, not mingled, uh, not, not separated uh, and veiled from one another, but, but coexisting or existing in one person, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Um, so one of the cool things, that, again, that I was reading, just mind candy, was, was the, the idea of, you know, the omniscient Son of God coming to a realization of who he was, right? You think about that for a moment, like as Christ is maturing, you know, uh, as he's maturing, we get this snapshot of him at 12, right, where he clearly starts to understand who he is and what he's called to do, right? But that was a process of maturation that took place as his brain developed, right? As his, as his thinking and his understanding developed and as he matured, right? And, and, and just like the Trinity, it's, it's beyond our, our, our kind of mental capacity to understand this concept of two natures in one person. And, and Millard talks about that here. He says, in thinking about the incarnation, we must not begin with the traditional conceptions of humanity and deity but the recognition that the two are most fully known in Jesus Christ, right? So in Christ, right? So John chapter one, right? Uh, The whole book of John, uh, Christ is the fullest revelation of the Father. He is the fullest revelation of deity, right? Uh, Christ says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Christ is the fullest and final revelation. So God throughout scripture has been revealing himself. He's been making himself known. 
And at times he's been doing that through individuals, right? He's been doing that through his word, through prophets. Uh, but, but in a full and final way, Hebrews chapter 1, right? In these last times he's spoken to us through his son, Christ is the full and final revelation and, and, and uh, revealing of deity. But not just deity, right? He is the fullest revelation of humanity. Right? Christ is... Uh, this is a bad term to use, but I'll use it anyway. The, the ubermensch, right? He is the superman. He is the fullest revelation of humanity. So uh, we sometimes approach the incarnation with the antecedent assumption that it is virtually impossible, which kind of makes sense. Uh, we, know that we know what humanity is, and we know what deity is, and they are, of course, by definition, incompatible. They are, respectively, the finite and the infinite. infinite. Uh, but this is to begin in the wrong place with a conception of humanity drawn from our knowledge of existential rather than essential humanity. Our understanding of human nature has been formed by an inductive investigation of both ourselves and other humans as we find them about us, right? So somebody was just saying that, right? Like we know humanity by, by us, right? We know it by my own experience as a human. I know it by my experience with other humans, right? So I got 43 years of experience of what I think humanity is, right? Um, but none of this, but none of us is humanity as God intended it to be or as it came from his hand. Humanity was spoiled and corrupted by the sin of Adam and Eve. Consequently, we are not true human beings. This is one of my favorite phrases, but impaired, broken down vestiges of essential humanity. I love that. We are impaired, broken down vestiges of essential humanity. And it is difficult to imagine this kind of humanity united with deity. But when we say that in the incarnation, Jesus took on humanity, we are not talking about this kind of humanity. For Jesus' humanity was not the humanity of sinful human beings, but that possessed of Adam and Eve from their creation and before their fall. The question then is not whether Jesus was fully human, but whether we are. <laughs> he was not merely as human as we are. He was more human than we are. He was spiritually the type of humanity that we will possess when we are glorified. His humanity was certainly more compatible with deity than is a type of humanity that we now observe. We should define humanity not by integrating our present empirical observations, but by examining the human nature of Jesus, for he most fully reveals the true nature of humanity. I think that's, I think that's awesome, right? Because this is, this is what we do. Arnie said, again, uh, talking about the Trinity, he said any of our uh, analogies that we want to use of the Trinity, we're almost always going to end in heresy, right? almost always gonna end in heresy. If we use an egg, we use a water, four leaf clover, whatever the heck you wanna use, right? We're gonna end in heresy because we are impaired. <laughs> we are impaired by our sinful nature such that contemplating these things, right? Uh, we do it, like Paul says, through, through a, a veil dimly, right? Like a, a glass dimly. Like we, we are observing and understanding and interacting with these rich, beautiful, deep theological truths uh, at the distance of sin, right? And so the, uh, the opportunity or the idea of understanding them is, is difficult. And so it's the same when we think about the incarnation of Christ, right? We often start from the wrong starting point. We often start from the wrong position, and therefore we're going to end in an, in an erroneous conclusion. But if we, if we start with the point of like Christ in his incarnation is fully revealing deity and he's fully revealing true humanity, like, he is showing us what it truly means to be human as God created us and called us to be human. Uh, then I think what Erickson is saying is true, that then we're at a place where this becomes not some uh, antecedently uh, impossible thing, but something that is truly possible, beautiful, glorious, wonderful, and instructive to us. All right, so the incarnation, Christ, uh, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son comes, takes human flesh to him. It's not a diminishing of his divinity. 
It's an adding to it. Uh, question 38 then, oh, and this is covered if you're, if you're bouncing back and forth between the, the larger catechism and uh, the confession. Uh, this is covered in chapter eight of the confession, uh, part two, the son of God, the second person in Trinity being very and eternal God of one substance and equal to the father did when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof. When we think of infirmities, we're talking about limitations, right? The limitations of the human nature yet without sin being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that the two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man? So that's the uh, Confession 8.2. So then question 38 comes, why was it requisite that the mediator should be God? Why was it necessary that the mediator, the one mediator whom we have, should be God? Why is that necessary? Jeff, any ideas? I was kind of Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> just, just stop right there. Just leave it right there. <laughs> <laughs> Let this sentence end right there. I imagine it's important. Well, I do too, as well, also. I love that. Go ahead. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, what, what was your oh. Never, never mind. We got, you're, you're, being, you're being outshone. Okay. Go ahead. Okay, only God can forgive sins, right? We see that, obviously, in, in, in the life of Christ, right, where he forgives sins, and, and rightly so, the Pharisees are like, who are you? Only God can do this, all right? So only God can be perfect. Only God can forgive sins. Why else? Was it necessary for our mediator to be God? Essentially, why is the incarnation essential? Why is it? Anything else is less than perfect. Yeah, less than perfect. I mean, so, the, so we think about the sacrificial system, the perfect spotless lamb. Uh, so again, coming back to the impeccability of Christ in the incarnation, right? The, the divine nature ensuring the perfection uh, of the human nature, the obedience of the human nature, the submission of the human nature perfectly to the will of the Father. Um, right? Other thoughts or ideas? Satisfaction of prophecy. Okay. Satisfaction of prophecy. That's always helpful. Yes, in the back. Nathan, what's up? Okay. Yeah, so uh, going to Hebrews, Christ is the, 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 the ultimate, the end high priest. Uh, he is the, the fullness of what the, the shadows pointed to, right? The, the copies of the heavenly things. So Christ is the fullness of that. Um, I mean, we think about the context of the sacrificial system, uh, the, the death of, of flesh, the death of, of uh, mortal, finite creatures uh, could not satisfy for the removal of, of our, our guilt, right? Um, the, the, father's, the Father's wrath against sin is an, is an eternal wrath, right? Uh, it is an eternal wrath. Uh, hell is, is an eternal reality. Um, we, we were... Um, <laughs> sorry, there's a little baby doing an army crawl inside. It's kind of funny. Um, who, was I, who was I talking to? Oh, crud, this always happens. Who I who I might have been I was talking to somebody I don't know but they uh, 
Oh, 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 it was an email I was reading. Ha ha, it was an email. It was an email I was reading. Uh, and uh, I like to snoop on other people's emails. And um, the question was, uh, some, some people were coming to join a church. They're coming to join a church, and they believed that hell was created for the devil and his angels, but not for uh, fallen humanity. So they're probably like annihilationists, right? Like uh, you're punished for a bit, and then you just kind of cease to exist. God, in his mercy, just kind of, you, you no longer exist, um, which is not true, right? The Bible teaches that hell is an eternal punishment. So how do you, sa how do you satisfy any like eternal wrath, like how can eternal wrath be satisfied? I mean, this is what this is what the writer of Hebrews is, is getting at throughout the whole section of the of the the the, um, uh, the old covenant and and the obsolete nature of the old covenant. There's not enough blood of bulls and goats and rams to be shed, right? It's it's not enough. Uh, you you could kill all the bulls and goats and rams for all eternity that ever lived, and it's not going to satisfy. It's it's temporal. It's it's momentary, right? Um, that, that's why the, the writer of Hebrews says that's why it has to happen all the time. That's why it has to happen over and over. That's why there is no end to the Day of Atonement. That's why there is no end to the sacrificial system because the blood of bulls and goats and rams cannot satisfy. But the blood of, of, of the eternal sacrifice, Christ himself, can satisfy eternal wrath. Right? So, so unless, the, like, uh, the only one who can satisfy God's wrath is God himself. So it's necessary for, for the mediator to be God in order to satisfy God's wrath against our sinfulness, for no, no one else could do it. Only God himself can satisfy it. Only the eternal blood of Christ the Son can do that. Now, so it's necessary for him to be God. Why is it necessary for him to be man? Because that's the next question. 39. Why is it necessary for him to be man? You are knocking it out the park today. Go ahead. Yep, only a man can represent humanity efficiently. Only a man can become the second Adam, right? So again, where would we go biblically to support the necessity of Christ becoming man, of, this, of the second person of, of the Trinity becoming man in order to satisfy the Father's wrath? Where would we go biblically? Okay. Okay, so Genesis 3 is so interesting, isn't it? Genesis 3.15, right? Her offspring and his offspring. And then that's never talked about again. I mean, do you realize that? Like every other mention of a serpent in the Old Testament is literally a serpent. It's a snake that crawls on the ground. Psst. Like this concept, this idea that we introduced into in Genesis chapter 3, do you know where it finds resolution? Like full resolution? It's not until Revelation that it finds full revolu re resolution where it talks about uh, Satan being the serpent. Of, of old, right? That's such an interesting passage to me because if, if we look at it and rightly so through the lens of the gospel and go, this is the proto-evangelion, right? The first mention of the gospel, yet the, the entire Old Testament never comes back and touches on in, in explicit ways that, that concept or that uh, reality in Genesis 3.15. But there we have this, this idea that there's going to be an offspring that comes uh, from the woman who's going, to, who's going to crush, who's going to do what Adam should have done, right? Adam should have crushed the serpent's head. The moment that little snake started speaking, should have crushed it, cast out of the garden, but an offspring is going to come who's going to do what Adam should have done, all right? Uh, through sacrifice as well, we know, because he's going to get bit on the heel. Um, so it's, it's, through, it's through sacrifice that that's going to happen. All right, what's another passage that we think about where the necessity of uh, the, the second person becoming man? 
Oh, crud, oh, crud. we're almost done. Sorry. I just, I just love talking so much. I apologize. Especially when we're talking about things like this. This is fun stuff. I mean, Hebrews chapter 2 and 3, right? Hebrews 2 and 3. Uh, it, it, since uh, his brother's share in flesh and blood, it was necessary that he too take flesh and blood to himself, right? He had to be made like his brothers in order to redeem them. So in order to redeem us, in order for redemption to happen, it's not just necessary that he be God. It's absolutely necessary that he be man as well. And not, not a little bit man, right? Again, this is where we go back to the hypostatic union. It's, it, it, he can't be a little bit God and a little bit man. It can't be a 50-50 mix, right? This isn't like Kool-Aid or like a lemonade stand at the end of the street. Like it can't be a mix of these things and go, hey, this is sufficient. No, he has to be fully God in order to fully satisfy the wrath of the Father. He has to be fully man in order to fully satisfy the wrath of the Father for us. Because if he's not fully like us, he cannot redeem us. Again, going back to the sacrificial system, one of the reasons it didn't work is because those are bulls and goats on the altar, right? Those are sheep and lambs. Those, those, aren't, those aren't us. <laughs> like, they're crying out to us, you should be dying, right? That, that's what these animals are, are crying out. They're like, you should be the one on the altar. You should be the one dying for your sins, not us. But they're also saying, we can't satisfy. Like, we can't do it. We're not sufficient, and so Christ has to be fully man in order to be fully like us to redeem us. And he has to be fully God in order to fully redeem us. And if any of these things are diminished, if any of these things are, are not what they should be, then our, our, you know, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. Right? So the incarnation is absolutely indispensable to our salvation. The fact that he's fully man and he's fully God are indispensable to our salvation. Um, we're talking about why, uh, question 40 is why is it requisite that the mediator should be God, man, and one person? Um, it's so that he can reconcile us to God, right? So that he can reconcile man to God. That's, I mean, it's, it's what, what's taking place. And again, that's a one-sided reconciliation, right? That's not God coming 50% of the way and us coming the other 50. That's 100% us being brought, brought to God. Like we are being reconciled to the one whom we have made ourselves at war with. Right? That's what Christ is doing. And question 41, why was our mediator called Jesus? Why was he called Jesus? God will save us from our sins. Uh, what's his name in the Hebrew? Is Yehoshua, right? God saves, Joshua. I, I read somewhere, I'm sorry. I just, you see people put stuff on the internet and it's kind of fun. And so somebody put this thing on Facebook that was just about uh, how the Catholic Church came about and it was completely and utterly erroneous. It was actually quite hilarious. <laughs> uh, but it talked about how, how, it was like at the Council of Chalcedon or something, uh, they changed Jesus' name uh, from Joshua to Jesus and that was the that was <laughs> bastardization or something of his name. And I was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever read. Uh, it's not true, absolutely not true. Uh, all right, any, uh, we, we gotta wrap up, but I'm, uh, uh, I'm running the whole show today so I can start later if I want to. So any, any questions or comments or thoughts on what we just talked about? None? All right. So either did a great job or a horrible job. Do you have any more questions? You said you had lots of questions. We got time. Good for now? All right. Excellent. All right. Well, let me uh, pray for us. And uh, yeah, Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for Christ. We thank you for the God-man. Uh, who you uh, sent to redeem us, to save us, uh, and to cleanse us, to make us new. Uh, Father, we praise you and thank you for your wisdom in doing that. We thank you for your wisdom in the incarnation. Uh, we thank you for your goodness, your sovereignty in the incarnation. We thank you for your love, your kindness, your compassion uh, to come and to seek and to save that which was lost. Bless us, we pray, as we continue to worship and glorify you. In Christ's name, amen.